Hey everyone, welcome back to 500's podcast. Today we're on our next episode of our startup series. And in this series, we'll bring you current and future founders together to share their personal startup stories, as well as offer advice to fellow entrepreneurs. Today you'll be meeting founder Jereen Pan of Relevant Mobile. Before she was working in luxury goods, and prior to that, she was on Wall Street analyzing restaurant stocks. Now she's helping restaurants on the technology side by building apps. Welcome, Jereen. Thanks, Jess. Yeah. So let's dive right in. Um, can you explain to us what Relevant Mobile is and what was the inspiration behind creating this company? Relevant Mobile is a mobile app developer and we work specifically in the restaurant industry. So we white label apps for restaurants and we'll put functionalities in it like loyalty or the ability to make a payment or answer a survey. So we pull all those things together and then feed all of the data that comes from it into a CRM. And the inspiration of it, you know, actually, if you dial back the clock four years ago, then what was really happening in the restaurant space then and in mobile was daily deals. And that's how we started. Mm -hmm. But we always had the goal of working with chains and someone who had a chain in New York City actually told us, hey, you know, I'd actually I'd like an app of my own. And so that's what got us started. Awesome. And so you first encountered and met 500 four years ago. You're an original gangsta. Yeah, that's right. You, you go way back. Way um, back. We're super excited. You were one of our early investments and you're doing quite well now. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see that you're working with an old school industry like the restaurant business. And I'm curious to know um, how you onboarded some of your first clients. It can't be the easiest task, especially in this industry. Yeah, we were much more hands-on when we first onboarded our clients. Onboarding a client for us would mean releasing an app into the App Store, um, into, into Google Play, and, and then we would have to execute it in the store and let guests know that they could download it. But back then, I mean, we're talking 2011, it was still early days and people were like, oh, how do I download an app? Mm -hmm. What do I search for? And so I remember the first, one of the first chains we did is called VivlaCrape. Mm -hmm. um, and we actually made them an app and then we showed up physically in their store and we donned aprons from them and we <laughs> were telling people to download the app and I still remember when customer number one first signed up because we were sitting there sort of lurking in the corner looking at our computer he pulls out his phone he signs up and there he was number one. Oh, which chain was it? Uh, it was called Vivlicrep. Vivlicrep, okay. You have good crepes? Oh, really good. <laughs> I'm going to check them out. I used to live in New York once upon a time. Oh, all the Nutella crepes you could possibly oh, imagine. Oh, man, I miss it. Let's bring that to the bay, please. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, what were some of the unexpected obstacles that you came across when you were first starting? And how did you overcome them? Yeah, this is funny. So when we started in the daily deal space, we were mostly working with clients and restaurants that had one store or two stores mm -hmm. and one of the obstacles that we did not anticipate was basically getting paid um, mm -hmm. you know if if you're running a restaurant then mobile app probably comes uh, in your list of payments after PG&E and after the landlord and after paying for the food and so it felt sometimes like we had become a collections agency overall uh, oh, yeah. overnight and so um, what we ended up doing was it, that issue went away when we pivoted and we started working with chains mm -hmm. um, who had more of an infrastructure and a marketing department and understood the value of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And that's changing now, actually. Um, mm -hmm. The sophistication level is growing across the board. 
Oh, that's fantastic. And how have you changed the market with your product? So before the mobile app um, approach, I guess, to loyalty, it was it was difficult for restaurants to be able to pinpoint Jess Erickson bought this burger today. They were always tracking how many burgers went, th went out the door because they were looking at inventory, but it was hard to tie it to an individual. Mm -hmm. And because it was hard to tie to an individual, it was hard to make it actionable. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, uh, now what we can do is we know that maybe you come on Tuesday nights and you come with a friend and maybe you order wine. And so as a result, now what we can do is tailor our messaging and get a better ROI on you as an individual mm -hmm. uh, because we know your purchasing behavior. Mm, that's super smart. So how is business doing right now? It is doing really well. Congrats. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I only have a little dip around the Christmas time when our clients are really busy and there's just been no dip. So things are going really well, which we're very fortunate. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I hope it keeps going up and forward. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, so most founders are, when they're studying their business, they're onboarding clients and um, they're also fundraising. So I, I was curious to know what your approach was to fundraising. And, and this is something that a lot of founders struggle with, especially in the early days. Um, so if you have some insights on the early days, we'd love to hear. Yeah, our fundraising has really, even though it's been four years, it's been mostly friends and family. It's been angels. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess if we have an approach, our approach is to try and spend as small of a percentage of our overall time fundraising as possible so we can spend the larger percentage of time doing the work that we need to do for our clients. Um, and so that's really been our approach. The efforts that we put in, um, early on, I mean, we just asked everyone we knew, mm -hmm. um, and my co-founder and I, we both come from Wall Street. We have a bunch of Wall Streeters mixed into our investors, and any time that we sink in, it's really to keep those investors updated, um, and they've continued to invest with us for the ensuing rounds, okay. which we're, we're really lucky about. That's a re really unique approach, because it almost seems like these days founders spend at least you know, 50% of their time fundraising and, uh, you know, hire out a team to build out the product, but you're, you're very hands-on with the product itself and you yeah. don't feel the stress or pressure of raising money to be able to build out more and hire a larger team. I mean, well, no, look, we definitely do. And we, we run, we run things on a shoestring. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it, we definitely feel the pressure. It's just, I think we bear in mind that we want to see profitability. Mm -hmm. We really do. Uh, we don't want to get in a situation where we're raising and growing and hiring and then way ahead of our revenues. Mm -hmm. And we're in a fortunate situation, I think, or just a different situation than some startups where we're a B2B business. Mm -hmm. We are selling to restaurants and restaurant chains. And so as a result, our business, you know, we're doing enterprise sales, for example, mm -hmm. whereas back before our pivot, when we were doing daily deals, that you're trying to canvas all of Manhattan mm. um, and you need feet on the street for that. And that requires a war chest of marketing dollars. Mm. So you, you would have to raise uh, a good amount or spend a good amount. Mm -hmm. But it seems like your approach has paid off and served you well. Sure. Yeah. And, and there's, there's pluses and minuses mm -hmm. of that, right? So um, I think we're going to grow to be a pretty good sized business, but some people might look at that and say, look, what I want is the Twitter. Mm -hmm. What I want is the thing that's going to raise a ton and then just reach everyone in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think we're going to have a ton of reach, mm -hmm. but it's just a different, a slightly different growth trajectory, mm -hmm. I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so can you tell me about an experience where at the time it felt like a failure, but maybe looking back, you can see it as a positive learning experience, which might have led to your success today? Yeah, I'm, I'm cracking up. How do I even <laughs> pick the? I mean, there's so many wins and then just so many, so many days where you're like, well, I learned on that one. Yeah. I remember early on, really early on, before we had any clients that we could point to, um, we were a part of an RFP uh, for a large restaurant company that was looking for someone to make their app. And man, we spent days on that proposal and on that presentation and my co-founder and I went in and we, we just, we were nervous, but we put everything we had into it and I think we did a good job. Later we found out that one of the other participants in the RFP, they brought 20 people to the RFP <laughs> presentation, you know, and so I think, you know, we didn't win that one, but it was probably a little early on for us. That was, that was a while back. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we definitely learned. Yeah, you live and learn. <laughs> yeah, we definitely learned. And we thought a lot about what our strategy would be mm -hmm. for a much larger company. And that has helped define a lot of things that we did from that point on. Mm -hmm. So is it just you and your co-founder? Do you have multiple co-founders? How big is your team? Uh, so we're 35 people. Oh, wow. Um, okay. But our engineers are overseas mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. And it is just my co-founder and I. I guess as founders, we don't have more than the two of us, but we have a rock-solid team in New York City. Oh, okay, so you're here, but the rest of your team's in New York, and your yeah. DevOps team is like I'm somewhere, what, in Southeast Asia? Where are they? In Indonesia. Oh, Indonesia, okay. Yeah. I guessed right. Yeah. <laughs> is there challenges in, in having your team outside of, in a different time zone? I mean, yes. it can't be an easy managing like process yeah the engineering side um mm -hmm. it's you know it's definitely not as easy as having engineers on shore but it's also not nearly as expensive mm -hmm. so um i think it's definitely and the ability to scale is much greater mm -hmm. you know how can i compete against um paying an engineer who wants to work at facebook mm. so and if our if our client work grows I got to be able to add engineers overnight and mm -hmm. that's a lot easier to do outside the US. Mm -hmm. So there's a positive to that. Of course, the negative is that, you know, we're on Skype at night talking to people all night long and our engineers were put in really long hours, the ones who are here in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and then as far as having team members who are non-engineers in different places like myself, uh, it actually, you know, in this day and age, it's, it's doable. Um, yeah. I've got Google video open a lot of the day mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's just, on in the office, um, our teammates have decorated the the screen where my face comes through. You know, so <laughs> you it, have fun with it. Yeah, yeah, we have fun with it, and it works. And you know, also it it again it has its pluses and minuses. We've really been able to build out a lot of our West Coast business. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, well, I you're preaching to the choir because 500 has regional partners all over the world. We're different time zones and we manage to communicate through WeChat. That's sort of our main oh, yeah. Yeah, mode of uh, communication, but it works. It somehow works at the end of the day. I know. Mm -hmm. We've got like 10 Google Chat windows up all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. But um, yeah, we originally met at a 500 women PR workshop and that's how we started chatting and we actually touched upon some of the diversity issues in Silicon Valley and you know, this was like a hot topic that you were really interested in. So I wanted to dive into a few questions with you. Um, Nina Brule put out an article in Newsweek highlighting Silicon Valley's unfriendly environment for women. Um, and we all know that this is a challenge. It's in the headlines these days. 
Um, and it's something that I think more women in tech need to discuss openly and collaborate and come up with solutions. I'm curious, how do you think we can change this environment and make it more inclusive and friendly for women? So I think that, you know, personally, I, I'm lucky that I haven't experienced firsthand a lot of things that I've read that women in Silicon Valley have experienced. But as I look at it, I think it's partly a numbers game mm -hmm. and it's partly just maturation of the industry. So the numbers game being that I don't think it's going to feel the way that you know a lot of women will want it to feel until we've got 50-50 representation of women at the top. Mm -hmm. um, and so most industries are still working toward that. All uh, of the industries. All of them. <laughs> and and then the other part of being maturation, you know, I I really I do think Silicon Valley today it reminds me a lot of maybe what Wall Street was like um, 20 years ago. It's just like Lord of the Flies, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and it's going to take time. Mm -hmm. for uh, things to happen. For example, for people to put in programs that are geared toward female retention, mm -hmm. for people to put together special task forces that talk about how do we keep women at the top. Um, these things, I, I think they work. I, you know, I, I look at my experience on Wall Street in comparison, mm -hmm. and I felt like it was much less pronounced. Oh, interesting. <laughs> the, yeah. the disparity of what women feel here in Silicon Valley, and it's because it's just taken time and voices and people putting the spotlight on it like you are here with the series. Mm -hmm. um, and as far as how we change it, I think we have to each use our own influence. Mm -hmm. So if you're a female founder, then you hire more women. Um, give those resumes a look and make sure that when you're making policies um, for your workplace that they're ones that you feel comfortable with and that the women who you work with feel comfortable with and that will impact the way that both the women and the men in your company think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, a lot of times companies say, hey, I don't have enough women applying for jobs. Well, I think they should shoot for finding awesome grads and then training them up so that they get qualified and that they do apply and that, of course, that they get promoted with time when they're in the company. And I think it takes, you know, the conscious effort of the entire team, not just HR, to really push that forward. So 100% on the same page as you. Um, do you think that being a female has had an advantage or disadvantage working in your startup? Super curious. It's been such an advantage, actually, I, oh, yeah? I believe. Yeah, so a lot of my clients are female. Um, they all have female consumers. Mm -hmm. And our first big client she, uh, she was a marketing executive running a company that has 80% female constituency. Oh, wow. And personally, I get really charged up about putting products into the market that are geared toward women. Yeah. And so she and I bonded on that on, on a personal and a professional level, um, and we're still very, very close today. And just very recently, we were in another RFP for um, a different client, and the male CEO put me on the phone with his wife who he really respects as a consumer of his brand. And he thought that together we could brainstorm and make something really unique for his company. Mm -hmm. And I think that gave us an advantage in an RFP where there were no women, mm. except for me. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Like I get excited when women are building products for women. You don't see enough innovation for female sub-industries. And I think it takes female perspective, obviously, to make great products for women. So I'm hoping there'll be like more of a trend where women on they can see interesting products or problems to solve that maybe a 20 year old white male from Stanford wouldn't catch. You know, like I just don't think enough young men who are entering this industry now understand 
and the needs and wants of women around the world. Maybe there's like a 50 year old woman in Somalia who needs a technology solution for her life. But, you know, the, the young guys here in Silicon Valley would have no clue where to begin. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it, it, there's definitely a trend. And I think there are more women building great products like the Clue app, which is this awesome menstruation cycle app that I use. <laughs> um, you know, just putting it out there. And, and I think uh, it's exciting to see women at the helm and, and starting to build these products. I agree. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times, um, especially in this industry, women really rely on having a mentor at the early stages, um, if not even throughout their entire career. Um, and I was curious, do you have a mentor yourself? And if so, uh, you know, how do you work together and, and how does this affect your work? Yeah, I am really lucky that I've had mentors all along the way. So it was actually, um, I went to a women's college and it was an alum from my school who pulled me into my first job and mentored me from there on out. And just feeling like I could ask her really honest questions was so helpful. And now in the restaurant industry in which I work, which is an industry full of really wonderful down to earth people, uh, I've been lucky to have some mentors who've been in the industry for a long time and they'll just tell me how it is. And you know, funny we're talking about the topic of women because a lot of my mentors now are the stereotype of they're a middle-aged white man. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, they're men who think women rule the world. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we secretly do. <laughs> At least we're plotting. The secret's getting out. Um, so you have a male co-founder, correct? Mm -hmm. um, how, you know, how is it different to have a male and female co-founder partnership? Is it important? Do you think this creates more perspective? I think at the beginning of a company's inception, there are so many things that go into that, and that has less to do with gender. Um, it has a lot more to do with enthusiasm and who has the ideas and um, who can build and, and things like that. But I do think it's incredibly important. It can be a wonderful asset. Mm -hmm. You know, if I were to start another company today and I said, do I want to pick a male or female co-founder, I would seriously consider making the gender choice mm. to have a male because I think that having the different perspectives is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and So you would encourage other founders to do the same, at least have one female or male counterpart? Yes, uh, I would. Mm -hmm. um, and the <laughs> if it's like my experience with my co-founder, and he would laugh to hear this because he'd agree, uh, at the beginning it's not going to be easy. Okay. <laughs> so the so many things are different, mm -hmm. um, and I hate to generalize because whether you're male or female, people have, for example, different communication styles. Mm -hmm. But you know, the communication style of myself and my co-founder, we tend to follow in what would be the stereotype of men and women. I'm pretty communicative, mm -hmm. and my co-founder is not so much. Mm -hmm. um, and in the beginning, gosh, we just we disagreed upon everything mm -hmm. and we disagree in the way that we would communicate about it was just clashing but um but is it really a gender issue then or is it a personality issue? exactly you exactly know, so, right. exactly yeah. so it it's all mm -hmm. it, i think it's all mm -hmm. and we can't generalize that way but for us that's the way that it is mm -hmm. right and one thing that i will say is um both my co-founder and i when we started out we were doing sales for our company mm -hmm. i noticed people respond to us differently mm. Uh, our clients respond to me differently because I'm a woman maybe talking about a woman, uh, a product for an 80% female clientele. Mm. Or they talked, you know, maybe CTOs sometimes respond to my co-founder differently. Mm. So I do find that people respond to us differently on the client side, but then also even 
our investors and our employees. They relate to us differently and tell us different things. So do you strategize and like you decide who's going to what meeting and who's going to have a, <laughs> a stronger outcome? Do you, you know, at times we have, but I think that that's not unusual for sales teams, no matter what the gender. Mm. Um, sales teams, I think something smart for sales teams to do is to employ a range of people who will get along with different folks mm. for different reasons. And you use the best asset you've got. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And, you know, there's been more attention these days on getting women in startups, getting women excited to code and build products. Um, what else do you want to see that we don't hear about? Oh, I, this would bring me right back to sales. I want to see more women in sales. All right. Are you listening, yeah. ladies? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think that this tends to be, this is another area where women are underrepresented. Why do you think that is? Is it the competitive aspect that turns them away? Because, you know, I, I feel like men's sales teams are really competitive. They're almost competing against each other. Yeah. Do women have that in nature? Do you think they could? Maybe a bit less so. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, hate to generalize, but I do remember uh, at Goldman, when we would look at resumes to bring in mm -hmm. people from um, colleges, we would definitely send a lot of people to the sales force who had competitive sport backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I do think you have to like to win mm -hmm. if you're going to be in sales, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not sure that I would say uniformly women don't have that, uh, but maybe for a lot of the reasons why we also don't see women in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. We don't see women in sales, but it's actually, I think it's the greatest secret uh, that women should discover. Yeah. Because I think that if there are more women in sales, they will kill it. I think so too. Um, we, we definitely have a different approach too, <laughs> but that's like for a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, there is that generalization that women are risk adverse and that might be the reason why we don't get into starting our own businesses more often as well as sales teams, but that's certainly changing. Maybe not fast enough for the two of us, but um, maybe we can consider doing a 500 women sales workshop and like see what could happen. Let's do it. Let's pinky and brain this. Yeah. <laughs> I am totally down. Um, but yeah, like I, I kind of want to do a n nice little overview and and kind of get more inspiration behind your experience building a company. Um, what was one of your greatest memories in building this company? And and juxtapose that with what was like the hardest day you had and why? <laughs> I know it's a double <laughs> Let me start double question hardest. here, but yeah, I'd love to hardest. hear your insights on this. Um, so for me, the worst days are the days where a customer is disappointed. Mm. Um, so and. Of course, with technology, there's always bugs. And a little bit, I think, of what our jobs are as entrepreneurs, and particularly people who are introducing tech um, to industries that uh, don't have as much of it yet, mm -hmm. is just educating them that mm -hmm. technology isn't fail-proof. Mm -hmm. um, so I remember one of the hardest days, we actually had found a bug in one of our clients' apps um, that week. And then two weeks later, uh, a different iteration of the same bug, but it was causing a similar issue, appeared. And they can't tell the difference between, you know, we fixed one, but then there was another. Um, mm -hmm. And and I remember just getting the call from the CEO, and and that's that was the toughest day. Yeah, I, I just interviewed um, a VP over at Grab Taxi in mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, which is, um, you know, a big unicorn. They're doing quite well. They're like the Uber of Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And she was telling me when they had a few bugs in their app, uh, the taxi drivers were unable to, you know, book 
their service and this would be devastating like some of the drivers would come up and say hey look i can't feed my family today because your app doesn't work and they become so like desperate and right. and and such an urgency to fix things especially for early stage companies so yeah. that must be an enormous pressure for every founder including it's yourself. an enormous pressure and yeah. i think that the job of the founder um or whoever is the one taking those those body blows mm -hmm. is to to shield the rest of your team so they can keep working and they can focus on fixing the bug mm -hmm. um I think that's a lot of your job. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that was the hardest day, but what, what's your greatest memory? Why do you do this on a daily basis? Why do you torture yourself building a company? There has to be some <laughs> positive attributes. Um, you know, what, what's like a highlight you've had in building this? You know, I would say there's little spikes of happiness, but mostly it's been gradual. The visual that I have in my mind is um, standing in the elevator with my co-founder and VP of sales and just fist bumping. Because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you have those meetings where you walk in and it's just the right person on the other side of the table and they've been looking for the solution and then they say, where have you guys been for the last six months? I yeah. really needed this and I'm so glad we're talking and you just feel so good about it. Mm -hmm. And that is one thing that I love about startup world or about tech is that you're able to bring solutions to people in the way that they innately feel like it should happen but it just hasn't been created yet mm -hmm. um, and that's what keeps you pushing and that's wanting to continue to build this company yeah that well okay that definitely keeps me pushing the other thing that keeps me pushing is a little more internal mm -hmm. um, recently one of our newer hires she told me that she was really really happy with her job and Aww. that made me feel awesome because when you're starting a company you just you know, a lot of the focus is external and who can we get to buy our product or how can we improve the product. But internally, at the same time, you're trying to build a team that's happy and that it's a place where people can thrive. Absolutely. I think sometimes companies lose sight of the fact that you're not just trying to create value for your customers, but you're trying to build value for your team. So I'm happy that you highlighted that. I hope all the founders are listening. Super important to build great company culture. Um, and that's what keeps a a positive, uh, you know, a push for your company. And, and I admire founders who actually take that into consideration, especially in the early days, because it can get so stressful. So you have to think about all that. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to wrap up with a, a last question. Do you have some great advice you could offer to a founder? We've got a lot. We've invested in almost nearly a thousand companies now. <laughs> I think there could be a lot more exchange with information, but you know, for those who are listening today, what, what advice could you part them with? Watch your health. Ooh, okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, stress is a real thing, mm -hmm. and I think it just sort of creeps up on you, and you don't want to get to the point where, um, where you're so stressed out or you're not getting enough sleep that mm -hmm. it's starting to impact you because there's a lot of other people counting on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's really good advice. I know we started introducing yoga classes here nice. <laughs> at Ooh. Yeah, for our batches, we make sure that they take a break, meditate. I mean, it's high octane. They're probably working 70, 80, maybe 100 hours a week. They have to learn how to decompress. There's so much adrenaline, actually, mm -hmm. that I think, you know, you might see a yoga sign-up or a meditation opportunity, you might be like, I don't have time for that. But I think it's the adding up those series of taking the small moments that'll make you enjoy it and mm -hmm. also retain your sanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Jiren, thank you so much for joining us in this podcast. You gave great insights into the company that you've been building and are continuing to build. Great advice for our founders. I would love to have you come back in a couple of years and give us a retrospective on where you're at and how you're doing. Um, for those of you who are interested, all those restauranters and all the, the big restaurant companies across the country, you can find more about Relevant Mobile at relevantmobile.com. If you'd like to speak to Jiren, you could tweet at her at G-E-R-R-I-N-E-P-A-N. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you.